Okay, dark card. So quite a few people have wondered if this uh, couple here at the beginning is supposed to be a, uh, a subtle nod to uh, John and Shaira, the fact that there's a, uh, a black man and a, a red-headed white woman uh, seems a little coincidental, given that that's the only other, uh, the only real prominent couple on the show, uh, has that, is that same combination of, uh, of race and hair color seems a little coincidental. Perhaps they were using this, uh, as a means of foreshadowing Shire's return in the very next episode. But whether that's the case or not, I don't know, but it seems awfully coincidental otherwise. The whole uh, concept, I've got to say that, uh, first of all, that presumably the uh, the boyfriend died because we see the woman being airlifted away later, but no sign of him except for his shoe, which uh, rather conspicuously does not have the rest of a person attached to it. Uh, so they got a little death in there, which they don't normally get away with. But um, the entire concept of the dark heart is textbook Warren Ellis and... Uh, I should explain what I mean by that. Warren Ellis was the writer of this episode, and as such, he was really the first quote-unquote celebrity writer that they had on the series. As the show went on, um, they had several comic book pros, noted comic book pros, uh, write episodes. Darwin Cook uh, wrote Task Force X, and uh, Steranko plotted the story for uh, The Ties That Bind. Jeff Johns wrote Ancient History. And, uh, but Warren Ellis was really the first, and uh, the whole pseudo-scientific bent of this episode, uh, combined with the sort of snappy-patter dialogue that uh, the Adam employs, and the sort of dry procedural tone, like the, uh, like the Justice League sees this kind of thing every day, and there's absolutely nobody commenting on how absurd everything is, is textbook Warren Ellis. Um, it's probably best exemplified in his run on The Authority, which a lot of people have probably heard of. The first uh, 12 issues of The Authority are fantastic, um, and he wrote those and uh, really exemplify his style, and uh, it's on full display here in this episode as well. The voice of, uh, I'm not sure what his rank is supposed to be, but the African-American uh, military man here that's radio radioing for backup is actually Michael Beach, who would go on two seasons later to play uh, both Mr. Terrific, Mr. Terrific and Devil Ray. So as, if, as I believe I've commented before, um, it's sort of par for the course that they have a, a well-respected actor, very prominent TV actor on for a relatively small part, and then later bring him back for larger parts. So it's, it's happened several times, and it happens again here with Michael Beach. Uh, Warren Ellis has said that he's quite grateful to uh, the producers, especially Dwayne McDuffie, who presumably took a pass at the episode after he was finished with his script, for leaving all of his quote-unquote funny bits in. Um, as I said, Warren Ellis's sort of snappy dialogue, uh, the Adams quips about, you know, getting old and getting sweaty in here and just don't squeeze and stuff like that are all, uh, are all par for the course for his style, and uh, they were presumably uh, all present in his pass on the script, and then Dwayne McDuffie left them all in. This is really the first episode that we see dozens of leaguers. Um, the Return was really the episode that was trumpeted as, as having a ton of members, 
but we really only saw maybe about uh, 15 or 20 of them there, whereas here we see almost all of them. There's about 40 of them in, the, in this episode. This episode is also the first where I noticed uh, some relatively poor animation on the part of Dong Yang. By and large, I have no problem with their work, but in episodes that require a lot of background characters and a lot of stuff going on and, and really, really busy episodes animation-wise, uh, it doesn't tend to come out quite as well as, as it might if other studios had handled it, in my opinion. In this episode, you'll see some of the background characters are quite off-model, particularly their faces. Uh, the fa even the, uh, the faces of characters in the foreground are quite bland and emotionless, particularly Wonder Woman's here in a second. Uh, and uh, that's something that uh, I began to notice more and more about there. Look at Vixen there, sort of wall-eyed and got this creepy smile. Uh, Wonder Woman's face is very bland and emotionless. Um, so that's something I began to notice in this episode, and then I noticed uh, more and more as the series went on, as we got into um, the Once and Future Thing Part 1, and uh, the Ties That Bind, and the Balance, even the Doomsday Sanction, which had very good animation in places. Uh, other times, the, just the, the, the characters would be quite off-model, and uh, I don't know if perhaps uh, the producers agreed with that assessment, which is why they switched to Dong Wu halfway through uh, Season 4, I don't know. But uh, it wouldn't surprise me, since they have, obviously, uh, an even better eye for detail than I do. So if, if I'm noticing some of these things, it must really uh, get on their nerves. Not to say that Dong Wu didn't do a lot of great work, but for a show like this, where there's a lot of characters and a lot of stuff going on in the background, if, uh, if that tends to be one of their weaknesses, then they're probably working on the wrong show. Some of the animation cycles you'll see in the background. There's one with Wildcat taking swipes at the uh, the machines, and one of Steel smacking them with her hammer. It's just the same, you know, twenty or thirty frames of animation over and over and over again. And I realize that kind of thing is necessary for budgetary reasons, if for no other reason. But it it never seemed to be quite as blatant to me as it was. Uh, it always seemed to be the most blatant in episodes that that Dong Yang animated. Anyway. Here, Jean makes, this is obviously the first reference to the uh, binary fusion generator, or the BFG. For people who, who didn't get that, and I didn't get it until somebody pointed, out, pointed it out to me, and this is, again, war analysis humor right here. Uh, binary fusion generator is obviously abbreviated as BFG, and for those that need me to spell out the joke for them even further, BFG could also be an acronym for a big effing gun, which is a little bit of a joke there. That's... Uh, And times in sort of light-hearted science fiction, there'll be a, a massive weapon that's called a big effing gun, and uh, Warren Ellis managed to sneak one into into uh, a children's cartoon show by uh, using a slightly different acronym. I thought that was quite clever. I like that Superman right there, he's the only hero that doesn't have to squint or cover his eyes when the gun is going off, because of course, you know, supervision and impervious to whatever, so... He's unaffected by the bright light. Gotta wonder why Vigilante is so front and center there, though. And here they set up that the, the gun drains the Watchtower's power, which, of course, pays off later in uh, Flashpoint. 
This episode is also, uh, it's around the time people began to wonder where the Flash was. Uh, seeing him in the return briefly and him not having any dialogue started to raise some questions. And here, when Batman makes the comment that Superman will get to Boston the fastest of all the heroes there, obviously raised the question, well, where's the Flash? So this is around the time period when people started wondering why Flash wasn't appearing. And he wouldn't appear uh, this season at all, in fact, not until the second episode of season four. So here we're about to get the Atom, and uh, the Atom's intro here is quite similar to the way he's introduced in Frank Miller's The Dark Knight, Dark Knight Strikes Back, which was his uh, much-lamented sequel to The Dark Knight Returns, where the Atom had been imprisoned in a, uh, a Petri dish or, or some sort that was being kept in a refrigerator. Uh, he didn't know that he was in a Petri dish. He, he was knocked unconscious, and he woke up, and he was in this world of giant monsters and this never-ending ocean and so on. It wasn't until uh, another character, Catgirl, came and rescued him that he discovered that he had been shrunk the whole time and, uh, and un unable to grow because he, he had had his belt taken away from him. And he'd been in nothing more uh, imposing than a Petri dish the whole time. Now, this is uh, John C. McGinley's second uh, time voicing the Atom, and I feel he's much improved over his, uh, his performance in The Return, where I commented that he seemed to be coming off as a little stiff. Here, where the Atom's got a bit more humor to play, and he's a bit more of a well-rounded character, because there was really nothing more than an extended cameo. Here he comes off much better, and I really love his performance in this episode. He really gives the Atom a lot of character. And here's the kind of humor I was talking about with this line about getting old. And here we've got the Adams theme, uh, nothing more simple than a few notes, moving up the scale uh, progressively as he grows, but uh, it's enough to give him a little bit of a musical presence. That's a nice shot there. I wonder why they put the Adam in Boston, because traditionally in the comics uh, he's been the hero of a fictitious town called Ivytown. I guess they thought maybe putting him in Boston would lend him a bit more of a scholarly uh, air or something, I don't know. And uh, I did a bit of research on um, the man that the Adam is talking about here, uh, John von Neumann, and his uh, his work on self-replicating nanomachines and so on. He wasn't a, a nanotechnician or whatever you want to call it, because, of course, no such uh, field existed in, in science uh, decades ago when he first posited these ideas. He was... Uh, he was merely putting out uh, some ideas about how space could possibly be explored and, and so on like that. It wasn't his, his primary work. It was just some ideas he floated. But uh, obviously it took off, and it's been uh, ver a very uh, popular field in uh, theoretical physics and space exploration ever since. So uh, I should talk a little bit about the Atom, I suppose. Um, he debuted in uh, Showcase number 34 in 1961. Uh, in reality, his uh, secret identity, Ray Palmer, obviously, was uh, named for science fiction writer Raymond A. Palmer, who, uh, ironically and appropriately, was quite a short person. Um, interestingly, something that a lot of people miss, because they didn't know who he was at the time, but uh, the Atom was actually mentioned briefly in uh, the, at the end of Hereafter Part 2, 
where Vandal Savage says that his big plot that ended up destroying the world was started with him stealing some white dwarf star matter from a scientist named Ray Palmer. And uh, that ties in uh, with the atom in that it's actually white dwarf star matter, and I believe he mentions it briefly in this episode, but it's actually uh, white dwarf matter in his belt that allows him to change size. I love this bit from Batman here. It's more great Warren Ellis humor, deadpan stuff. And I love that it shows how um, how used to working in a team environment Batman has become. He started off as a real loner, but here he's he's at the point that he trusts his teammates, particularly Superman, to the extent that he can be falling, free-falling from thousands of feet, about to be smashed into the canyon walls, and yet he doesn't even blink. He just assumes that one of his friends will rescue him. So it's a great little bit. Um, I love the whole sequence between here and the next act break. Uh, Let's go to work, and the whole musical cue that uh, that Bruce Tim is also quite a fan of. But anyway, back to the atom. Um, his origin was that, as a physicist, he was experimenting on some white dwarf star matter. I don't know how he was supposed to have gotten it. Perhaps he found it in a meteorite or whatever. Um, he found that he could use it to to shrink things, but anything he shrunk with it would quite quickly explode, which obviously would preclude any practical application of the technology. Uh, but he was forced to use it on himself after he and some of his friends got trapped in a cave-in. Uh, he, ha- he had there's this, some of the kind of poor-looking animation cycles in the background I was talking about with Steel there. Um, he needed to shrink himself to escape from the cave and rescue his friends. He did so, and in the process found out that he would not explode when uh, he used the White Dwarf Star Matter to shrink himself. He theorized that there was something in his own particular biology that protected him. Uh, he decided to integrate the white dwarf star matter along with some weight and mass controls into a belt and eventually into controls that he integrated into the palms of his gloves as well and fashioned a costume. And this is cool. They don't really touch on this in this episode where he's standing at his full six foot whatever and he's got the costume on. But in the comics, the costume would only appear when he shrunk. The, the sort of pseudoscience explanation they came up with was that the costume would fit tightly when he was little, but when he grew, the atoms of the fabric would ex- would be so far apart because he's expanding and growing, the, the uh, molecular bonds of the costume would be so far apart that it would be invisible to the human eye. And so he'd be wearing it when he was six foot whatever, but you wouldn't be able to feel it or see it because the atoms of it would be so far apart. But then as he shrunk, it would condense and form a costume around him. So that was kind of a neat thing. Um, and, uh, yeah, he found that he could, uh, use some controls on his belt to, uh, to change his, his mass and his weight. So he does, he can't just shrink, but he can also, uh, give himself all the strength he would have and the mass he would have as his full six foot person, even though he's small. So he could shrink and deck a criminal and it'd still be knocked out. He could also fly by making himself really, really light. I'll come back to this Vigilante Shining Night moment in a second. And um, he could also, and sort of his trademark bit, is that he could travel through telephone lines. So someone would ring him up, and he'd be able to travel through the uh, uh, telephone lines by riding the electrons or whatever to the uh, and come out the other end where the person talked to him, talking to him is. That was sort of became his trademark bit. Um, one of his... Uh, trademark sticks would be that he would often travel through time uh, through an invention known as the time pool. He would also, in the classic Silver Age stories, um, be recruited by his girlfriend, Jean Loring, to help her win her cases because she was a lawyer. 
and at the time, this being the 60s, she would often be referred to as a girl attorney or something like that. Uh, this here, I'm surprised they got away with the Adam riding in, in Wonder Woman's bust year here, but uh, apparently there was a line after he shrinks and she places him there. He would have a line about just don't take any deep breaths, but uh, broadcast standards and practices made them take that one out. Um, the Adam had a, a tiny little meeting chair, a meeting room chair, that would hover above the Justice League uh, meeting table. And he was uh, best friends with Hawkman. And that might seem like an odd pairing, but the reason why they were established as being best friends is because for a while they shared a title. Neither of their titles were selling well enough by themselves, so they combined them into the Adam and Hawkman, much as uh, Green Lantern and Green Arrow had a combined title for a while. And that's why they ended up being established as uh, best friends. Um... At one point, he was de-aged and became a mentor to the Teen Titans. Uh, relatively recently, his wife, Jean Loring, and I'm going to spoil Identity Crisis here for anyone who hasn't read that yet, his wife, Jean Loring, went insane and uh, was responsible for the deaths of family members of several other superheroes. Uh, in disgrace and in, uh, you know, consumed by grief over what his wife had done in order, in her twisted mind, for her to be able to be with him again, because they were divorced at the time, consumed with grief, he uh, he shrunk himself further and further until he disappeared altogether and has not reappeared since. Although as of this recording, uh, there are rumors swirling that he will appear again quite soon. He's been succeeded by uh, another Adam named Ryan Choi, and uh, his he currently has an ongoing ser series written by Gail Simone. So about the uh, the vigilante shining night bet, um, Bruce Tim had something to say about that. That this that that moment was really quoted by a lot of people as being the kind of moment that only someone who was well versed in the comics could love. Because after all, who knows these days from Vigilante and Shining Night, and how could anyone who wasn't a comic geek enjoy that moment at all? And the series has become too fan oriented, and and so on and so forth. But Bruce Tim has said that several people, completely unsolicited, have come up to him and told him how much they loved that little bit. Uh, two separate people told him that their preteen kids loved it. Now, he goes on to say, since kids these days obviously don't know who Vigilante and Shining Knight are, and since they probably don't even know that much about cowboys or knights in general, uh, he can only assume that the reason why so many people love that moment is because it works on some sort of primal level, that there's just something really cool about seeing these two classic heroic archetypes, cowboys and knights, uh, teaming up and fighting high-tech monsters. So the the idea of that with, with the really great music in the background, he says, is one of his favorite moments. And uh, he feels that it works whether you read the comics or not. Um, oh, Dr. Light, I forgot she was even in this bit. The, uh, this episode is also noteworthy for being the first appearance of uh, General Eiling, voiced by J.K. Simmons, who um, is probably best known to uh, movie-going audiences as J. Jonah Jameson in the Spider-Man movies. Uh, General Eiling first appeared in Captain Adam, Volume 3, Number 1, in 1987. He was a uh, military technician uh, who blackmailed the falsely accused Nathaniel Adams a.k.a. Captain Adam, but not yet uh, Captain Adam, blackmailed Nathaniel Adams into participating in a dangerous experiment that ended up turning Adams into Captain Adam. Um, 
the experiment, and although this isn't touched on in JLU, the experiment also catapulted Captain Adam 18 years into the future. So at the moment he became Captain Adam, he also was slingshot 18 years into the future. Uh, during that time, Eiling married Adams' wife and acted as a father to his two children. When Captain Adam returned, Eiling manipulated him into serving in the military as Captain Adam until Captain Adam left in disgust. Uh, he was the main villain of Captain Adam's 1980s series. Uh, more recently, Grant Morrison, in his run on JLA, uh, turned him into the monstrous uh, being known only as the General. And this is basically the same transformation he makes in Season 5's The Patriot Act. But in the comics, uh, Eiling was dying from a, from a brain tumor and had his brain transplanted into uh, the body of an indestructible villain that the League had fought before called the Shaggy Man, who was just basically this big monster covered in hair, and Eiling shaved all the hair and became this, became this clean-shaven monster called the General. And so the origin of the, the monster body is somewhat different than it is in Patriot Act, where he simply takes a serum and becomes like this big Hulk-type creature, but the principle's essentially the same. What's interesting here about uh, the ending, when Eiling is talking to the League, is that he's standing two feet from Captain Adam, who's standing for some reason at the front of the lineup, and yet neither he nor Captain Adam make any mention of each other or, or show any signs of knowing each other, and yet presumably they have this big history that's touched on later in question authority. So I don't know, but then Booster, what the hell's Booster standing there? He's just like, I don't know what's going on, man, but I'm happy to be standing at the front of the group. And of course, this helps set up the whole um, the Cadmus thing in another way. It was unintentional, a lot of the Cadmus foreshadowing, uh, apparently, the producers have said. Bruce Tim said that uh, it all so, seemed to come together at the end, but a lot of these elements that were added, like the binary fusion gun and General Eiling, were added uh, just not with no intention of having them pay off later, but it all just seemed to coalesce into this uh, large arc. Now, Superman's last line there, we are, when I first heard it, it took me out of the episode because it sounded for all the world like Kevin Conroy's voice coming out of Superman's mouth. Now, on repeat viewings, I'm almost certain it is George Newbern, and there's no reason, obviously, why it wouldn't be, but I've never heard Newbern <laughs> deliver a line with such a low, gravelly voice before, uh, and it sounds for all the world like Kevin Conroy, but that's neither here nor there. So that's Dark Heart. Thanks for listening.